This is episode number 208, How Plants Heal Marginalized Communities with Stephen Ritz and the Green Bronx Machine. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. But to call communities a food desert is really not what they are. What they are are food swamps. There's more kinds of crap available in my community than there ever is whole food. It's easier to get liquor than it is to get lettuce. I learned about organic food because students were buying organic blunt wrap as opposed to just cheaper blunt wrap. So what is available in low income, low status and marginalized communities is not the healthy stuff. It's not the good stuff. It is processed food. It is crap, calorie rich and processed food. It is a mess, manufactured edible synthetic substances. It is the clown, the king, the colonel, and all that other crap that sits on every single corner with logos and ethos and pathos that put children at the epicenter of profit. I'm super stoked that you're hanging out with us today and it is my absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to so many incredible people to help make all of our lives better. I hope you've all been doing well and staying on top of all of the things that are important to you. And something that I've started doing in my free weekly newsletter, which you can sign up to at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, is talking about things like motivation, how to deal with uncertainty, how to prioritize, and more. And something else I've started doing is including journal or thought stems just to kind of get you thinking, things that have been in my mind things that help us find more ease and clarity throughout our day. And I also include the podcast for the week. So you can get that at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. I've really been appreciating all of your comments on the podcast. And that definitely helps me stay motivated whenever I hear from you, because it's so exciting to know that this podcast is actually making a big difference. And speaking of making a big difference, our guest today is absolutely incredible. He has infectious positivity He's so inspirational and his inspiration makes you curious about things. He's funny and you just want to keep listening. So who is he? His name is Stephen Ritz and he is a South Bronx educator who believes that students should not have to leave their community to live, learn, and earn in a better one. He's an internationally acclaimed award-winning educator, the author of the best-selling book, The Power of a Plant, and founder of The Green Bronx Machine. Stephen is known as America's favorite teacher and is responsible for creating the first edible classroom in the world, which has evolved into the National Health, Wellness, and Learning Center. He and his students have grown more than 100,000 pounds, 100,000 pounds of vegetables in the South Bronx. And in the process, Stephen has moved school attendance from 40 to 93% daily and helped provide 2,200 youth jobs in the Bronx. Stephen was a top 10 finalist for the Global Teacher Prize, named Global Humanitarian, Food Tank Hero, TEDx Prize winner. He's presented at the Obama White House three times, and a replica of his classroom was installed in the U.S. Botanic Gardens in Washington, D.C. He has even met the Pope. His work has been featured everywhere. Forbes, Fast Company, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Disney, NPR. I could go on forever and ever. And his TED Talk boasts more than 1 million views and ranks in the top 10 food and education TED Talks of all time. 
He appeared on PBS's Growing a Greener World, episode 808, that won an Emmy Award. This man is nothing short of marvelous. His work in plants are the linchpin to helping marginalized communities by starting with what we eat. And in a lot of places, fresh food isn't available. We take it for granted that we can just go to the grocery store. We can drive our cars to the grocery store and pick up almost anything we want because that isn't the case in a lot of places. And people opt for the cheapest, easiest, fastest thing, which is often fast food. Green Bronx Machine is an impact-driven, for-purpose organization with 501c3 status, and the curriculum is being used all over the world. And I just can't get enough of Stephen Ritz. In a school with a 17% graduation rate and a very high crime rate, every one of his students finished school and stayed out of jail. He likes to say that he grows organically grown citizens. For anyone worried about rising childhood obesity rates, better access to healthy, affordable food, and job opportunities, he and his curriculum lift families out of poverty, and he has hard-earned answers. And not only is are these children eating better, growing their own food, inspiring their parents to eat better, but he teaches them how to go sell the food, how to create jobs, and how to get confidence and believe in themselves so that they can achieve more in their lives. Stephen himself has lost over 100 pounds by the power of plants. The story of how he found indoor gardening is hilarious, and it is literally by accident. We talk about so many things in this episode, from how he built his first edible classroom to why growing your own food and inspiring kids to grow their own food changes the world, how to motivate kids how he is transforming the Bronx, and why plants are the linchpin to changing the world. I think this conversation is especially relevant right now with the discussions about systemic racism and the way that Stephen is working in these marginalized communities is so empowering and I can't wait to learn more. I've personally donated money to his organization and I strongly encourage you to check out the Green Bronx Machine website. If you're interested in adopting more of a plant-based lifestyle for yourself, I'm inviting you guys to join my free Facebook group where everybody is invited, even if you aren't plant-based. It's called Plant Powered Academy. We've recently changed the name from Plant Powered Tribe to Plant Powered Academy, and there are over 2,200 members in there, and everybody there is just to support one another. It's not about being exclusive. It's not about pointing a finger and saying that you have to do this a certain way. It's just about having an environment where people can just share ideas, we can support one another as we are all on our own personal journey to better health. If you haven't already, please take a couple of seconds and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying the show. It literally takes no time at all and it makes such a big difference. And if it's helping you, that means it'll help other people too. And that is the best way. And telling two of your friends about this show, that's the best way to make sure that we can all get the information that we need to be better every day. And I know for myself, listening to podcasts that have guests and books and information and education that I love, that has been such a huge trajectory of personal growth for myself and for everybody around me. So thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. And here is Stephen Ritz. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. So I want to hear about the cheese hat. (laughs) So as you may or may not know, uh, for many years, I was called the big cheese. And I was called the big cheese because 
I was the dean of students and I walked around school literally eating pizza. The skinny, sexy guy you see in front of you now is not always who I was. You know, I had a deviation at one point. I was 330 pounds. Just to give you some context, uh, I have the T-shirt here. My wife has been making me clean the house. So this used to be me. All of me. Lots of you to hug. uh, (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot to hug. But I was literally the big keys. Went on to get my administrative license, my principal's license. Went to my first principal's conference, believe it or not in Wisconsin, got off the plane, saw the cheese hat, and the rest is history. I've been wearing the cheese hat now since 2012, 2013. When I show up at the White House, they want to know where the cheese hat is. When I met the Pope, the Pope wants to know where the cheese hat is. I met Anthony Bourdain. He asked me about the cheese hat. So it's really become something much bigger than I ever imagined. Uh, Little children like to take bites out of it, but it's really kind of become my (laughs) iconic symbol around the world. Wherever I go, people just love the cheese hat. It's a great conversation starter. Royalty has worn it. Princes and princesses. The only people. Secret Service took it away from me, though, at the White House the first time with Mrs. Obama. (laughs) Wow. They were afraid something inside the mysterious cheese hat. There might be. There's something in there. All right. But it's something good in there. Your head. (laughs) Yes. It's a lot of good energy. So how did how did you, how did you lose the weight? A certain amount of fortitude to wear this hat. Let me tell you. You know, it takes a certain amount of courage. It totally does. And everything that you are doing has taken a lot of courage. I want to hear how well, you. How, I want to hear how you've lost the weight and how you've kept it off. Well, I I think the most important question to really ask is how did I gain the weight? And I mm. gained the weight one pound at a time. I'm an ex-athlete. I know you're an athlete. I'm, a, I'm still an aspiring athlete. If the Knicks are listening, this is the last year I'm available, yo. I promise I'll get in shape for this season, but this is it. So they better act quick. And as I started teaching and getting older and age advanced, I got hungrier. I got older. I started eating what was literally available in my neighborhood, which is, you know, I've always been a Bronx resident. I started drinking more and more soda. And one pound at a time, slowly but surely, I can't believe how big I I got. And also, I had a tremendous relationship with food. So everything that I did would be about food, going about food. I'd get up in the morning with my daughter, go out for breakfast, to go to go go to McDonald's, to go out for breakfast before we went out to eat. And literally, um, I was eating myself sick, even in the midst of farming. You know, you get hungry, so you eat what's available locally. But it was a lot of soda, a lot of carbs, a lot of fried food, a lot of what I call crap, calorie-rich in processed food, the mess, the manufactured edible synthetic substances, you know, the clown, the king, the colonel. Uh, My life was really, I felt like I needed a 12-step program off the 99-cent menu. And at one point, I just had a heart attack in front of my daughter in school. They rushed me out of the building. I was on tons of medication. And I said, the buck stops here. And literally, uh, I wore that blue shirt to the White House to hear Mrs. Obama speak and stood outside the White House. And she said, the way we treat our children is indicative of who we are as a nation. And from then on, it was game on. I decided just to eat what I was growing with children in school. I think I lost 110 pounds in seven months. And that was, you know, in 2012. Also, you know, my TED talk, when I saw myself at my TED talk, I said, I'm up there talking about healthy food and, and soda and chips being the poison. And look at me, I, I'm talking about it, but I'm not really being about it. You know, I look like Orca, the great white whale. So I decided I really had a action into motion, so to speak, and words into action. 
and decided that, you know, I was really going to live the mantra that I was espousing. And it's absolutely possible to lose weight. It's absolutely possible to be healthy. You can see I got my little farm here in the living room. I got my model classroom behind me. I can show you all my little stuff back here. <laughs> really, that's what we do here. I love that. It's really about you know, replicable, scalable things. So I started, the first thing I did, action step, is I stopped drinking soda because I was drinking like five or six 44-ounce sodas a day. You know, that's cheaper than water. It's available. It's in the store. So that was a couple of thousand calories. Instead of having a big bagel and a huge coffee, which was half sugar in the morning, I have a small coffee with a lot less sugar proportionately, just as sweet. I had some protein. And in the first week and a half, I think I lost 20 pounds. And I was like, wow, this is working. And then I started doing other things. I started just going to a smaller plate. We went from a 13-inch plate to an 11-inch plate in my home. But I made sure half the plate was vegetables, uh, less salt, less sugar. And just one thing after another started adding up. And it's really been game-changing for me and my family and my community. How did you start the inside farming? And I'd love to hear some of the stats about the South Bronx because people have heard of the Bronx, but they don't really know much about it. So I'd love to hear about that. So I work, my school is located in the poorest congressional district in America. Bronx, New York state has 62 counties within the state. Our county, Bronx County is both the poorest and then the sub-county of school district nine is the poorest congressional district in America with the poorest health outcomes in all of the state for eight years. My community has some of the poorest performing schools, and let us not blame that on people in the residents, but let's really talk about the social determinants of health, whether it is housing, access to health care, employment, you name it. All of these kind of social determinants of health really play into very dysfunctional pockets of persistent poverty that are exacerbated by inequities in the public education system. So my work in the South Bronx around food and food justice happened very unexpectedly. Sadly, my wife and I had some tragedy. We lost a child before birth and then again after, and I just took a job closest to my physical home to be closer to my family. I didn't want to spend that 30 minutes commuting every day. I wanted to be able to walk to work. So I opened up the directory, picked the school closest to my home, and wound up teaching high school at what was the worst high school in all of New York City. And this was in 2004. To give you some context, it had a 17% graduation rate, 256 felonies committed within the building in a year. We had 48 school safety officers, 18 armed policemen, and 18 deans of discipline in one school. Imagine that public expenditure having nothing to do with education, but just the policing of it and the politics and the safety of it. That's how dysfunctional that school was. By happen chance, after you know a career that was probably 20 years, 20 some odd years in the Bronx already, it turns out that I knew every single child in the building and I was made one of the deans. Hence the elevation to the big cheese down the line. But I was made the dean and also charged with teaching 17 of the most dysfunctional children in the building and tasked no less with teaching them science, of which I knew nothing about because I am not a scientist. I have no science background. I have no farming background. I have no horticultural background. You know, to me, the world would be better. It was all dark and indoors, like a good gym, you know, or a nightclub. That was kind of my mindset back then. So I got on the Internet and I put out a kind of like an SOS call for help. 
to all my friends, family, and kind, help, I've been tasked with teaching science and send me a microscope, send me something, you know, please, what do I do? I know nothing. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a call to the principal's office, Mr. It's some teaching class, come to the principal's office, please. And I go running down to the, the kids think I'm in trouble again. So they're excited. I go running down to the principal's office and on her desk is this big box and it has my name on it. And I'm like, yes, Christmas, I've won the prize. You know, the internet works. Thank you, Al Gore. You should have been president. You know, this thing called the internet works. And I rip open this box like a kid on Christmas morning. And I go looking inside and I'm like, they're like these things. They look like onions. I was like literally WTF. What could this be? Children will kill me with this. They'll throw them their projectiles. They must have been for something else. I walk out of the principal's office. Uh, you know, dejected, take this big box of what I thought were onions, threw them behind this radiator in the back of the classroom and literally forgot about it. About eight weeks later, right around, I guess, oh, Thanksgiving, the week before Thanksgiving, which is always a tough time in public education, the Thanksgiving holiday, because those holidays really bring up a lot of stuff for children and communities like mine the good, the bad, and the ugly, and probably all across the country, too. And the kids were really going in. We had this little mischievous kid named Gonzalo, and he was going after this girl, Carol, making jokes about her mother, and then he hit her literally right between the eyes with a mother joke. And the whole class is dying, and Carol jumps up, and she's running across the class, and I'm thinking, my career is (laughs) over as I'm running across the classroom to like get in between them. Suddenly Gonzalo sticks his hand under the radiator and comes up and pulls up a bunch of flowers and starts waving them in Carol's face. And everyone is like, what? Magic trick. What are these? (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. Like he totally punked this girl who's going to kill her with flowers. And we're like, where did the flowers come from? Well, it turns out that that box was the, the those onions were actually this thing called flower bulbs who knew i had no idea so the boys wanted to give them to the girls we looked behind the radio there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flowers it turns out these bulbs were forced by the steam of the radiator and the moisture and then gravitating towards the sunlight so that was an incredible moment that's what you call in the south bronx a teachable moment and it turns out that we figured we should look inside the box and That we did. We looked inside the box and we learned that we were invited. So the long made short of it is that year, my students and I, all of whom were ex-offenders and came with a lot of baggage, planted 25,000 bulbs across New York City to commemorate 9-11. And we were actually invited down to city council because they thought we were the honors program, which is kind of like a very wonderfully sublime moment. But it spoke to the power of what is possible. Ultimately, those 17 children who came to me graduated high school, which in and of itself is a data blip of epic proportions. Many went on to form their own businesses, get involved in green jobs. Some went on to serve serve our nation. Some went on to work in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And that was the beginning of my community gardening work. We went from kind of ornamental gardening. It was around the time of Mayor Bloomberg advocating for stormwater mitigation and, you know, the New Yorkers for parks movement. So it was a critical time. But I never got introduced to food until we got invited to Whole Foods. And then that was like 
game on. When we saw all these people buying food in Whole Foods, we wanted to learn about Whole Foods. And ironically, many of my students, for a variety of reasons, have experience with hunger. Hunger is a non-negotiable in so many communities. So the notion of being able to grow food was really cool. The ability to grow it and sell it, Whole Foods actually allowed us to sell it, was really cool. So we tried to transition from ornamental gardening to food gardening. And, you know, it was just remarkable. And then we actually started learning about the science of indoor gardening. You know, literally a seed was planted that if you were to ask me then, I would have never imagined where I would be today. We transitioned to indoor gardening. My students and I wound up winning the National Indoor Gardening Championship, which was totally cool. We got invited to San Francisco, but it turned out, believe it or not, to be the marijuana show. So the kids <laughs> thought I was totally cool. They were like, Mr. Ritz, you're the coolest. I'm like, oh no, my career is over. But it turned out it, at that show, all of this hydroponic and aeroponic technology was there. We made a pact that we were all going to, to the event together and coming home together and not taking any of the free samples. <laughs> and the last day, we happened to see some technology that caught my eye and caught the children's eye. And that was game changing. You know, that year, I think, you know, we came back to school. We built the first edible classroom. We went on to be able to feed 450 children a happy, healthy meal grown in school using 90 percent less water and 90 percent less space. I then got very involved in working with younger people and went on to Green Bronze Machine, went on to become an official 501c3. So we are always looking for support. Uh, Just put that out there. And literally got involved with younger children because I started realizing that so many of these overage, undercredited children were really adults with very poor, were like child adults in terms of their literacy skills. Some of them had children themselves. A lot of them were obese and they were obese and nutritionally bankrupt, much like me. So for me, it's just easier to raise healthy children than fix broken men. I started embedding my work into public schools And I work in the middle of public housing, in the middle of the South Bronx, surrounded by 45,000 residents in eight square blocks who love eating, growing, and working their way to healthy outcomes in high-performing schools. I love that. And I'd love to hear about what food deserts are, because I actually never even heard of that until I was watching. It was one of the plant-based documentaries, and it was talking about some areas in the South. And was the Bronx a a true food desert, or is it? So- I actually hate that term, food <laughs> desert. And I'll tell you why. I'm going to the principal's office now. I'm in trouble. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. It, it's a great misnomer because, you know, implying that something is a desert means the desert is not a viable ecosystem. And organisms in the desert thrive. They just thrive on what's available. So the desert is kind of a, is a viable ecosystem. But to call communities a food desert is really not what they are. What they are are food swamps. There's more kinds of crap available in my community than there ever is whole food. It's easier to get liquor than it is to get lettuce. You can't buy it. I learned about organic food because students were buying organic blunt wrap as opposed to just cheaper blunt wrap. So what is available in low income, low status and marginalized communities is not the healthy stuff. It's not the good stuff. It is processed food. It is crap, calorie-rich and processed food. It is a mess, manufactured edible synthetic substances. It is the clown, the king, the colonel, and all that other crap that sits on every single corner with logos and ethos and pathos that put children at the center, epicenter of profit. So, and there's a reason for that, because right next to those places is usually the dialysis uh, center. 
right up the block is usually some kind of health plan that is dealing with diabetes. So this notion of food system, of, of food deserts, they're really food swamps. It's packaged food that allow the health, wealth, and opportunity of one community to be transferred out in single-serve packages, which is also really disruptive for the environment, and, and leave death, disease, and disease in its wake. But to your question, in a very innocent and innocuously posed question, a food desert is, is a place where food, healthy food, whole food, non-processed food is, readily, is not readily or easily available. Fresh food, fresh fruits and vegetables, whole food products, you know, non-factory farmed items, you know, non-processed meat, you know, it's that kind of stuff. And why is it not available? Is it the cost? Well, for a lot of things, it has to do with storage. It has to do with shelf life. Um, you know, and cheap food is always so much more expensive. And what I mean by that is cheap food is made and processed and sold as cheap because everyone gets rich on the flip side. They get rich on the healthcare side, on the addiction side, on the multiple packaging. It is harder to get fresh food into communities like ours because, number one, there's limited means and limited access. Um, you know, when parents are working three, four jobs, you know, at minimum wage and make no doubt about it. You know, in, in marginalized communities, there is this myth that people aren't working, that everyone's sitting around on welfare. That is usually not the case. Nope. There are so many people working three, four, five jobs, um, oftentimes below minimum wage, that, you know, what they know is what they want are shelf-stable items. It's also how we're marketed to. I have children, you know, in my community who can tell you every single jingle, every single icon, because... It's what they're fed. Um, and, you know, we've got to, I, I take great umbrage with celebrities and, and sports figures and public figures who are out there pushing products on kids. You know, the official drink of this, the official candy bar of this, obey your thirst and drink that, please. We cannot sell the health and wealth of the communities who have built you under the premise of eating and drinking something will make you healthy. And ironically, even so many of our parents think, that, you know, giving children energy drinks is good because of the way the media portrays it. All natural, all natural doesn't necessarily mean all good. So understanding marketing and understanding the way our communities are marketed too, really is part and, prob, part and parcel of this food desert notion. And, you know, we're out to change that. And nothing changes that more than growing your own food 365 days a year indoors. And why do you think that, that growing vegetables is the linchpin to helping people change their lives? Because a lot of people would actually be nervous to even teach in the schools that you're working in. And the complete shift that you've created with growing fruits and vegetables inside has been unbelievable. Like, why do you think it's those yeah. things? Well, I call it remarkably the power of a plant, a great book, which I recommend you get. If you send me your address, I'll send you an autographed copy. And 100% of the proceeds support the program. But there are a couple of great things, first and foremost, with older, older children. In this age of food allergies and food restrictions, I've never met a child who's allergic to money. So for older children, if you give me a penny and tell them that I can give you a penny in 30 days, I'll give you a $5 bill, their eyes light up. They're interested. You know, in 2007, I gave a talk at Columbia University called From Crack to Cucumbers. And I brought down 20 young people who were selling crack, heroin, and cocaine across Washington Heights, Harlem, and the South Bronx. And they gave it all up to sell organic vegetables. And, you know, the change in their lives 
was remarkable. So part of this whole crisis around food, deserts, and marginalized communities is don't talk to me about education if you're not talking to me about opportunity. Opportunity inclusivity is absolutely tantamount. But getting back to the other piece with little guys, when you put a seed in a child's hand and you promise them that that thing is going to bloom, they get really excited. You know, I've got a massive farm here in the Bronx and, you know, for 15, 16, 17, 18 years. And I still marvel at the seeds that we put in. You know, if you go to our Facebook page, you're going to see a farm that's going to give 5,000 pounds of food. You know, I've got things growing here in my living room that a week ago, you know, were a seed. So I'm inspired by it. And of course, if children grow it, they eat it. Kids who grow kale will eat kale. Kids who grow tomatoes will eat it. And if that's the first look that they get instead of, you know, eating a bag of Skittles is not eating across the rainbow, damn it. Healthy, fresh food is. So, you know, children will never be well fed if they're not well read. So give, I mean, they'll never be well read if they're not well fed. So giving them access to healthy food where they need it really nourishes their bodies and their minds. As a dean of discipline and a school building leader, I met so many children who come to school hungry, who come to school with two energy drinks because their parents think they're doing the right thing, or a bag of chips and a bag of cookies, and two hours later they're in the dean's office trouble or upset. What do we know about children who are obese? And, you know, 25% of the children that I look at are obese. Life expectancy in my community is 15 years less than any within three miles away in the Upper East Side, simply because of what these children are eating and their environmental exposure. So for me, it's absolutely tantamount to get them on this trajectory of good health along the way as early as possible. And, you know, children who become kinder and empathetic around growing and compassion and little responsibilities. I have plant police, leaf monitors, pH patrol. We have more jobs in my class than you could ever imagine. The children do the work. I get the credit. It's awesome sauce. So how do you get them off of the foods that they're all addicted to? Because all the processed foods is highly addictive. And even people that aren't in the Bronx and just people in general who want their kids to start eating more plants, they say, well, my kid's not going to eat vegetables because they have access to X, Y, Z. So how do you get them off of the crap? Well, the first way you get them off the crap is really to let them understand what it is. So I could tell children, don't drink soda, don't drink soda, don't drink soda. And they look at me and they basically want to flip me. You pick the finger, but you know which one it is. You know, they're going to flip me the bird. But if you take a hard boiled egg, you put it in a glass and fill it with Coca-Cola and you come back a day later, the eggshell comes right off. Kids get like, Ugh. when you start asking them how many people in their family have diabetes and you start really analyzing at a young age what these children are eating. You know, here's the deal. Children want to know the truth. They're not afraid of the truth. And giving children exposure to the truth at a young age changes everything. But I'm not, you know, I'm not the candy police. No, I am not. But I'm the good health patrol. And in my classroom and on my shift, certain things are simply contraband. The other thing is children are really enamored with the changes that they've seen in my life. They know where I stand and I lead by example. I'm not sitting there with a 32 ounce Diet Coke in my hand saying, you know, eat healthy. I'm sitting there with water, with iced tea, with sparkling beverages that are fruit infused. And when you teach children about it and give them exposure to other communities where this is readily available, they start aspiring towards that. I always say children need to see it in order to be it. You know, they have to taste it in order to want it and make no doubt about it. You know, the big evil companies are very good about creating products that are both addictive and low price points. 
But when you teach children what it's doing to them and their bodies, OMG, they really get upset. No little child wants to grow up imagining that, you know, they're going to be sticking needles in their arm to stay alive or they're going to be dependent on medication. But yet they know so many who are. So, you know, having that frank, honest conversation is really important. The other thing is if you find good ways to eat vegetables, they're really delicious. So I'm not the vegetable police. I'm more like the soup man. And, uh, you know, we make fun dishes together. We try new foods. We try new things. We learn about the culture. We learn about people. I'm blessed to live in a wonderfully diverse community with immigrants from around the world where so many people want to share their culture and so many people want to share their stories. And the coolest thing, of course, is when you can farm indoors, not in the field, not in the sun, not getting your uniform dirty, and also connect it to real academic work and the possibility of living wage jobs, people get excited. So uh, it's the perfect storm. What do you think are some misconceptions that people hold over marginalized communities? Because I think a lot of people have never even been to one. So what are some misconceptions that we can demystify here? That people are lazy. Number one, that people are lazy. Number two, that people don't want to work. Those are the big ones. People don't understand how hard it is in America to be poor. Being poor is a full-time job. And if you have one or two, and, and most Americans are only one or two paychecks away from being really compromised. And now more than ever with the COVID crisis on so many levels. For example, you know, we're 18 blocks to the subway. You know, we have a community of 45,000 residents packed into 20 some odd buildings, 25 stories high, 15 families on a floor. Just try being in the elevator, getting down that building on time. Try getting your kids in and out. So by default or by design, which is a much larger conversation and certainly one I don't think you're prepared to have today, but I'm delighted to pursue with you or anybody else. There are structures and systems in society that really are designed to perpetuate the status quo. And more often than not, that falls on marginalized, low status and communities of color and, you know, other folk. And we've got to change that. I like to say education, not asphyxiation in every sense of the word. I actually want to talk to me. I, I actually want to keep, keep going with that. I want you to keep going on that. I mean, case in point, the Metro North, you know, the biggest commuter railroad between New York City and Long and Westchester passes right through our community passes through 24 hours a day. Does it stop? It would be six minutes to Midtown from right at the the tip of my school. The train should stop there. And it doesn't. Six minutes to Midtown, 17 minutes to Westchester. For me to leave my school, I have a 35, 20 to 30 minute walk to the train, 18 blocks, up and down hills, tough terrain, tough neighborhood, to get to a train that may or may not stop at that area. I may have to go uptown to catch the stop, to go downtown. It could take me an hour and a half to get to Manhattan, where literally the train that passes the neighborhood and beeps every eight minutes doesn't stop there. So again, by default or design, these are certain things that really inhibit and restrict a community's ability to not only survive, but certainly don't allow it to thrive. And, you know, there's this expression in New York that said that uh, only the strong survive. For me, I'd like New York to be the place where every resident can thrive. And that, that's my goal. That's the focus. That is the calculus of my advocacy. I also, you know, take umbrage with a lot of the nonprofit work that goes on, not because nonprofit work is not admirable, 
But the more we outsource policy and decision making to nonprofit work doing very lofty things, the more we are taking the onus and the responsibility out of the greatest single lever that we as a society have, public education. So, you know, so much of nonprofit work is dedicated to raising salaries, paying real estate. And there's so much duplicity when, in fact, that nonprofit work should really be embedded right into the principles and very fundamental tenets of what we are doing most importantly in public schools. So I take umbrage with that. And again, I have no issues with philanthropy, none at all. But philanthropy kind of thrives on the model that says, wow, let's send lots of bottles of water to Flint, Michigan. And we need to because they have no water. So sending bottles of water to Flint is admirable, but really on a policy level, fixing the damn pipes and criminalizing anyone who violates the sanctity of people's access to clean and healthy fresh water should be put to jail. That's the answer. But, you know, policy and change is hard, but hopefully change is coming. And, you know, as we sit in the midst of this COVID crisis and so many other critical moments that, that Black Lives Matters are addressing right now, I hope we go from a moment to a movement, from a tipping point to a turning point that really allows us to address some of the largest societal ills. And, uh, you know, without getting too much on a soapbox, but there I go. But I can talk about that all day. Yeah. And I mean, lifting the veil of all these things that are going on, like most people, you know, white privileged people don't understand or realize. And I'm working myself to get more educated on all these things and seeing how I can help and contribute. And knowing about what you're doing is so incredibly powerful. And I wanted to ask you, like, why do you think it is that eating more vegetables and engaging the kids in science in the ways that you are is making kids graduate more and decreasing crime rates. Like, why do you think that is? The children like to be engaged, first and foremost. The other thing is all the data in the world points to the fact that, you know, the more fruit and vegetables you eat, the stronger your immune system will be. That's just a fact. So eating fresh fruit and vegetables is absolutely tantamount to good health. Let food be thy medicine and let thy medicine be thy food. You know, we've got to move away from a pill for an ill kind of mentality and really start looking as our kitchens, at our communities as a way of fostering good health, moving from health care to self-care. And the first way you love yourself is by what you feed yourself and what you feed your children. There is so much evidence now. There is so much knowledge now around what is good food and what is bad food. And, you know, I remember as a little boy, my parents, they used to send me out to school every day with a bologna sandwich on white bread with a devil dog because they didn't want me to have the stigma of school lunch and because we thought it was healthier. But we know now what is and isn't healthier. And we've just got to st start really looking at whole systems change if we want to be inclusive and equitable in all that we do in society. And that's the bottom line there. There, there is so much justice to be had. But it all starts with one small step. So for me, it started by not drinking soda. That was the first step. And then it, I got rid of bagels, smaller coffees, less salt, less sugar. You know, I said I got a divorce from little Debbie. You know, Miss Freshly <laughs> and I, we no longer speak, you know. And I stay out of, I love, you know, the fast food. The clown, the king, and the colonel, they were my best friends. But, you know, I send them postcards instead of going for extended visits. Yeah, and there's lots of people that are probably think, oh, yeah, well, I, I don't agree and that actually won't work. But the things that you're doing proves that it does work. There are naysayers everywhere. I don't limit the challenge. I challenge the limit. And I'd like to say that 100,000 pounds of vegetables later grown in the South Bronx come talk to me. Last week, we graduated a girl, the first in her family, an immigrant family, 
to be accepted to 27 colleges, including Columbia, Penn State, Spelman, and Howard on a full academic scholarship. 2,200 living wage jobs, come talk to me. That's what we've produced here in the South Bronx. And we're just getting started. And you know, nationally and internationally, our program has you know, achieved top 10 status in the nation from the Harkin Institute, top 100 educational innovations in the world. There's a replica of my classroom in the, in the U.S. Botanic Garden. And we have 500 happy, healthy, high-performing schools around the country who weren't simply because I'm not the fruit and vegetable police. I'm really about teaching good pedagogue, quality of teaching and quality of learning. But when you center that around happy, healthy eating and things that grow and happen in front of you and really focus on project-based learning and sticky educational experiences, it's critical. And here's the deal. In high school, when kids come home from high school and they're disengaged, you know, the parents want them to get a job, do something. Kids in high school, they want cell phones, sneakers, and sex. Let's call it what it is. Living wage jobs can help you achieve that. And the hospitality industry in large metropolitan areas is a conduit to that. On the flip side, when my little guys, and we realize we grow hundreds of bags of groceries a week, every week, not during the summer, but every week. When my cute little guys go home to their parents with vegetables, the parents want to eat them. You know, it, it's cute. It's adorable when they go home with recipes that are easy to do, fun to make, simple. Parents tend to get involved. Our parent engagement is off the hook. And that's because really we keep it simple. We keep it fun. And I don't believe there is a parent in America, wealthy or poor, struggling or successful, that doesn't want the best for their children. And when you educate children to help them, their parents make the best decision, people tend to do that. Listen, that's how McDonald's got big. You know, it's called the Happy Meal. We all know the mommy, mommy, mommy factor really well. So getting young children involved about eating healthy. I remember how my parents stopped smoking. It wasn't because the Surgeon General said stop doing that. It was because me and my brother said stop smoking. You stink. We want you to live. And we made them nuts. So the, the impact that children have on their parents, on their community is huge. So what kind of curriculum do you design? Because there might be teachers or parents listening and they're, they're thinking like, OK, yeah, growing fruits and vegetables and getting my kids engaged in food. But like, how do you actually design your curriculum? So that's a great question. I have my curriculum. Hold on. I'll show it to you. So this is a copy of the Green Bronze Machine Classroom Curriculum. Oh, wow. You'll see it's 300. Yeah. It is not the art and science of growing vegetables. It is the art and science of growing vegetables aligned to Common Core Next Generation Science Standards. It is the writing, the advocacy, the math, the science, the inquiry, and the real sticky project-based learning aligned to rubrics and test scores that makes this thing the beauty that it is. And I didn't design it for champion teachers because champion teachers really don't need that kind of support. I designed it for struggling schools, teachers in communities where they don't have lots of money and lots of access to things. So we really redesigned education to take some of the profit out of it, which is something that I believe very adamantly about. So it comes with a lifetime site license, no tiered fees, no annual subscriptions, none of that. It is a one-cost lifetime subscription with data maintenance services. We make it very recursive. All of our training that accompanies it is free. It's online. It is Common Core, Next Generation Science Center. So it's not the after-school program. I'm not Stephen the Salad Guy or Stephen the Spaghetti Maker, so to speak. And there's nothing wrong with cooking programs or after-school programs or gardening programs. There's nothing wrong with that. But principals have very limited time and very limited capacity to accomplish Herculean results. 
So what this is, is the art and science of growing vegetables aligned to every single content area. And we do it with low cost replicable technology. And you know, whether it's this tower garden behind me or another piece of technology, we go from a box to a garden in 45 minutes if you're a man or 15 minutes if you're a woman because you'll read the directions and watch the video. But that's the kind of classroom gardening experience that we want. And where is that garden? Where it's needed most, inside a classroom. You know, during the winter months, during the fall months, during the spring months. So it is the center of learning. And we've created a bunch of media-based experience. We have over 600 links on the website to materials, projects. Everything is downloadable and ready. We really want to take the profit out of education and put the purpose back into it. So can people get that at the Green Bronx Machine website? If you go to the Green Bronx Machine website, you can certainly get that. You can certainly get a copy of my book. It comes autographed personally to you. Believe it or not, every dime from this book goes to support public school programming. I have children's books where every single penny goes to hire parents out of public housing to work in public schools around health, wellness, nutrition, and gardening programs. You can get some cool Green Bronx Machine swag or our sustainable gangster t-shirt. The cool thing about our sustainable gangster t-shirt line I see you like it. You like it good. The interesting thing about this is this shirt is produced by women at living wage jobs and the purchase of it results in a bag of groceries for a family. So we always said we could grow our way into a new economy for a long time. We have not been offered a seat at the table. So here in the South Bronx, we are building our own and making our own and growing things daily. And that's what it's really about. The next generation of entrepreneurs, ecopreneurs, and children who are no more consumers of other people's crap but are producers of our own content and our own destiny. You've been teaching for a really long time. How has teaching changed and how do you define social emotional learning? Ooh, thank you for reminding me how old I am. That's okay. <laughs> uh, all good. You know, it's funny because it hasn't been a long time. It's been just like one deep breath moment. But to give you some context, you know, I started teaching before the internet, before uh, before, you know, I, tell, I had no iPhone. I had children can't believe it. You know, to this day, I've never played a video game in my life. I have a car with roll up windows. The kids think it is so cool. Um, things have changed because there's a lot more accountability. And in a lot of ways, that is great. Realize there is more access to information here than there is in any school library. In case in point, when I started teaching in in 1984, I was given textbooks. The textbooks were from the 50s, and they said, one day man will get to the moon. And I remember reading this with children in class one day, reading the class book. And the children, you know, I was wondering, didn't this happen already? You know, I know the 70s were a little hokey for me. Uh, I had a lot of fun. But, you know, I kind of remember men getting there, you know. And um, the children were so disconnected from that, they didn't even know. So the ability to have access to information is amazing. But what does the data teach us now? The data teaches us that children who have access to one kind, caring adult will succeed in their life. And my goal is to be that kind, caring adult for as many children as possible. And it starts with putting on a cheese hat and being there. So you've got to show up in order to grow up. You know, there are a lot of things that take little talent, being kind, being polite, being receptive, being prepared, being positive, being, you know, being energetic, having good body language, that doesn't require talent. That just requires a willingness and children really respond to that. So education has changed because also there's a lot more accountability on the administrative side. We need to really hold all schools and all communities to the same standards. So there, there, there's a lot more 
transparency these days. And that's great. But there's also a greater sense of urgency, which sometimes is frustrating because I get it. School systems are large. They're tough to turn on a dime. But again, I not to be shamelessly self-promoting. This book will inspire you because it's my odyssey as a teacher. And to think, listen, I've been fired. I've been put in the rubber room. I've been asked to graduate and work elsewhere many a time. To think that you can be endlessly resourceful and endlessly resilient is indeed the power of a plant, something that's willing to grow. It comes with a hundred, with a double your money back guarantee. If you don't like the book, I'll buy it back for twice the cost. And something that has been incredible with your work is that people have gotten healthier, children have gotten healthier, and their belief in themselves, their mindset has changed. And really, there's been a fundamental shift in their identity and what they believe they're capable of. And that's why this is so powerful. An identity shift is, is no small feat. So do you think it's the plants and somebody believing in them that's helped them change the identity? Or do you think there's more to it than that? So I think when you teach children about nature, you teach them about nurture. And when you teach children to nurture, we as a society embrace our better nature. And, and what does that mean? It means that, you know, listen, I we have ladybugs in my classroom. It's really funny. We let the ladybugs go in the classroom because they eat aphids. It's our integrated pest management. They're learning about ecosystems. And there are days, let me tell you something, where Mr. Ritz is pretty, pretty grouchy. And I'll walk in and say, children, please be quiet. And the kids, they don't want to be quiet. But if I say, guys, can you be quiet? You're stressing out the ladybugs. Wow. You can hear a pin drop. So I think children love learning about nature. They love being able to take care of things, to have that good first look, that first sense of wonder, their first puppy, their first dog, their first hamster. The nice thing about plants, of course, for me, is there's nothing that eats their young, no poop to scoop and nothing that floats Mm -hmm. at the top of the tank. Although we do have lots of fish tanks in school now, and we have children who so love taking care of these things, who feel a sense of purpose and responsibility and connection to another living thing. And also particularly in very dense urban settings like mine, where it is literally the concrete jungle. You know, kids are buzzed into the buildings. They shop behind plexiglass and bulletproof windows. Connecting them to living ecosystems, to something that is dependent upon them, really empowers them. And it's really remarkable. I mean, I talk about this all the time. Most children don't even know where their food comes from. You know, you ask them that they want a hamburger. They don't know a hamburger comes from a cow, that it was a living thing. And when you expose them to living things, they really get excited. You know, I always bring in a live chicken and say, how many nuggets? Kids don't even know that wings come from the wing. I'm like, okay, you want some wings? Go cut them off. Here's the chicken. And they're like, ah. You know, the the remarkable thing is we have a whole crew of vegans now in the South Bronx and vegetarians because children understand that there is life and death cycles involved. And when they start learning about these things, they hear that we as teachers tend to hear the dreaded words parents can't stand. It's not fair. And when little children say it's not fair, I love it because what does that mean? They're going to do something about it. So case in point, they put a new Wendy's in our community. The children love Wendy's. What's not to love? She's a beautiful icon. The food's 99 cents. We found out that, you know, Wendy's didn't want to pay their tomato farmers one penny more a pound for the tomatoes. And you know what happened? Not one of my students has walked into Wendy's since. And instead, we're having bananas for a snack instead of smoothies and, you know, and some high fructose corn crap. I can't (laughs) say what I was going to say. You know, so it really changes things. Kids want to be activists. They want to be environmental stewards. I have yet to meet a child at a young age that doesn't care about a living thing. 
And when you give them experiences to connect to that living thing and other living things, including their peers, that's game changing. So that that's the beauty of, of vegetables. That's the beauty of growing things in class. That's that's the beauty. You know, I like to say I'm a peace promoter. I'm a seed spreader and a peace promoter. But what I'm really promoting is children to understand that they are part of a living, breathing ecosystem and they get excited about that. We have scientists now. Children really want to get excited by science and the process and learning and doing things. Um, they're makers and tinkerers. And, you know, they're they're growing food all kinds of ways now. It's really exciting. Have you had any altercations with some of the parents over your methods or beliefs? To say that my career has been controversy-free would be misleading. I will say that parents have been wonderfully receptive to me because my authenticity is my advocacy and my advocacy is my authenticity. I like to say that I am CEO, Chief Eternal Optimist of Bronx County, but the one job that I relish most is president of being president of the Children's Union. So I have been a staunch advocate for children from day one of my career, and parents know that, respect that, and appreciate that. And that is at the foremost lens of my advocacy and work. My goal is not to be my brother's keeper. My goal is to be my brother's brother. Do you have any interesting memories that you want to share of maybe that one kid in the back of the class? Everybody's engaged, but there's just that one kid sitting there with his or her arms crossed, just not wanting to participate. Like, how did you get them out of their shell? Listen, there are so many children who come to school. Realize one in five children in certain communities are homeless. We have over 100,000 homeless students in New York right now coming to school daily. That's larger than a lot of school systems. Wow. So understand the baggage that some of these children come in. One in five children, you know, 39% of the children live in poverty. 61% of the children come from a single parent household. 25% do not graduate high school. Understand what that means. So many of these children are children of children. Teenagers having children who don't even understand that. So sometimes, you know, the big goofy guy in a cheese hat and a bow tie and big green shoes is all they need. Sometimes everyone just needs to be a little teacher's helper. Sometimes I come from a place of attraction rather than a place of, you know, pointing my finger. And I believe when my class is a safe space and a safe place and a place where children want to be, they really love coming to school because they know first and foremost they will be respected, protected. And no child rises to low expectations. So in my class, we set the bar very high. And if we fail here, that's okay. But I'm not going to say, oh, because they're poor, we're going to set the bar here. No, I treat my children the way I treat my own. I'm proud to say that my daughter has come to work with me each and every day. She knows my students. She knows the children know where I live. They, yeah, I mean, you know, I am very much a fixture in the community. And I don't see myself as anything more than one piece of a wonderfully beautiful mosaic that just wants to lead by example and create access and opportunity for all. Yeah. And you mentioned the science. And in case nobody's listened to some of the other podcasts, like we've done podcasts with like gastroenterologists about gut health, saying how eating a diet that has lots of plants in it will actually increase the amount of serotonin and decrease the amount of depression that you have. The amount of plants that you eat changes the way that your brain works. Your brain doesn't work as well when you are obese. And that's in Dr. Greger's How Not to Diet book, which is all about obesity. So it's no wonder that eating more plants changes the way people's brain works. They're crunchy, too. They're fun. They're <laughs> crunchy. You know, taking the time to prepare a meal and 
listen, Kip's dissolving your tongue, one, two, three, and what do you want? You want more. It's designed like that. But taking the time to crunch, to chew, to eat, to talk, to use a fork and a knife is really, these are skill sets. You know, we have big elaborate meals of salad where the children get so excited and they present. Um, you know, it's a lot better than having a damn donut, you know, and sitting there, you know, half hour later, passed out or hyped out. Um, and again, we grow it, we sell it. We have farmers markets, we bring food, we're home to the perfect pickle. You know, so much of food is about science, whether it's fermentation, crystallization, all of that stuff that you could really do with food that's cool. Um, it's awesome. You mentioned you've been to the White House and the Vatican. What was that like? Mind knowing. I mean, to think that, you know, first to get invited, it was really cool to get a note from Pope Francis that excused me from school. But, you know, I was on an NDA to get invited to the Pope and, and to meet his holiness and to really um, understand his care for the community. And to me, Pope Francis is the people's Pope. I think he has really extended a kind of compassion, empathy and reach around the world that whether you are a person of Christian faith or not, I like to say we are all people of the book. You certainly want to emulate his compassion. And of course, to have, you know, we brought children to the White House this morning. I was on the phone with the former White House chef, our dear friend Bill Yassis, you know, who's come to our classroom and cooked with our children. And to have our children in the White House is game changing. To be known as a champion of change, to put a farm inside and outside the White House and to be invited to South by South Lawn and have President Obama himself cite our work in National Geographic as one of the leading um, technologies and taking on and tackling climate change and the obesity crisis goes to show you that the Bronx is poised, willing, and able to export its talent and diversity in ways that we can't imagine. You know, I was humbled to have my portrait painted by Robert Shetterly, who's probably an, an artist you should look into um, for the Americans Who Tells the Truth series. And, you know, I'm a truth teller. I mean what I say and I say what I mean. But the most important thing to realize is, you know, from hope to the Pope, from our classroom greenhouse to the White House. Um, the greatest natural resource in the world is the untapped potential residing in marginalized and low status communities, both in the United States and around the world. I meet heroic children, whether it's children who walk eight hours through the mountains of Colombia to come put on my cheese hat and find out if it's edible and talk to me about green shoes or children who really want to redefine the way agriculture and water is being used in, in communities in the mountain, whether it's, you know, the, the, so many of the children I visit with in Cairo whose families live on less than a dollar a day and still manage to get their children to school each and every day for the promise of a better, brighter future. These are the real heroes. This is who we owe the work to. And um, it really is about equity for me. It's really about access. It's really about opportunity. But nothing is more exciting to me than to walk into a classroom in the middle of the morning with 30 children or 40 children or 400 children ready and eager to learn and also eager to beat me up, you know, and, and take advantage. So it keeps me on my toes and I like it. And of course, the nice thing with the young ones is, you know, they get older real quickly and I don't. So I feel ageless. You know, they keep coming back and they graduate. So they look older and I'm still the same goofy guy with the cheese hat and the bow tie. So it's a kind of cure for the fountain. It's my fountain of youth. One book you haven't mentioned that you wrote is Make It Happen. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I wrote a children's book called Make It Happen. That's also available on the website. And it's kind of my personal story about how you overcome obstacles, asking for help, teamwork, defining moments. It has a lot of great resources for children. 
It's available on the Green Bronx Machine website, of course, and it'll come personally autographed from me to you. But it's got great resources, pictures. It has pictures of me in the White House, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, a lot of celebrities that I've met along the way. It's really been remarkable. And it goes to show you that seed well planted can give you a crop of epic proportions. So thank you for mentioning that. Yes, please do go to the Green Bronx Machine website and check out our merchandise page and follow us on social media for sure. And if you choose, please make a donation. We'd love that. And where did you get your bow tie? I make these bow ties. So this is an official Scrabble bow tie. It's a Scrabble board that has my name, R-I-T-Z. We make grow ties. So we make them. We put seeds in. You can actually eat off your bow tie. No we have Lego. Yeah, they're available on the website, too. And the children will make them for you and we'll ship them next day. We literally ship out about once a week. So we have a burgeoning business here in the South Bronx, but that's the kind of way we have taught our children to be resilient. We have little bow tie conventions. I travel around the country and people always have bow ties and they love to show up and take pictures. I always show up with my green shoes on. The kids get a pick kick out of it. So I always have my green shoes and either my camel socks or my red, white and blue socks to be very patriotic. I also have taco socks for Taco Tuesdays. I have wacko, wacky Wednesday socks. You know, I have vegetable socks and strawberry socks and all kinds of fun stuff. But, you know, school should be a place of fun. It should be a place of wonder. It should be a place of inquiry. It should be a place of aspiration and support. And I believe that low-cost replicable technology aligned with high-quality recursive pedagogy is the awesome sauce of public education. Well, thank you and so much. And, of course, nothing if children aren't well-fed. So making sure they have access to healthy, fresh food is critical. And let me give you an interesting fact. Do you know that according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, students who have access to any kind of school garden or something edible in a classroom wind up consuming 44% more fruits and vegetables during their career? Wow. That's awesome during their time in school. So the greatest way to encourage children to have access to eat fruits and vegetables is to show it to them. I love it. Thank you so, so much yeah. for coming on the show. And I'm so incredibly inspired by the work that you're doing, it is changing the world. And I'm just so happy, happy that I get to share this story. Well, thank you. I'm sorry I didn't ask, get to ask you any questions. I feel like I'm kind of monopoly. Oh, you're not supposed to ask me any questions. <laughs> okay. I, I like to be very conversive. I like to, you know, as we say, pass the plate. I think, you know, you keep what you have by giving it away. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, if you're in the South Bronx, feel free to visit. Also, you can check out my website at stevenritz.com and follow me on social media, too. I'm learning how to do it all. It's a lot of fun. Oh, next time I'm in New York, I'm coming to visit. Please do. We, we'll make you an outrageous meal. You tell us what you want, we'll make you an outrageous plant-forward meal. And my children, I'll introduce you to my steminists. They're the young girls who are feminist steminists. They're <laughs> awesome sauce, and they all want to grow up to be scientists and vegans. They're a lot of fun. That's awesome. I hope you guys enjoyed that absolutely awesome episode with Stephen Ritz and the Green Bronx Machine. It was so inspiring and I was buzzing for weeks after I recorded this podcast and I am so excited to listen to it all over again. You're going to hear more from me in the future about the Green Bronx Machine because this is a nonprofit organization that I truly, truly believe in from eating plant-based for health to helping these communities to teaching people and empowering them to be their best self. I'm so excited about Steven and all the work that he's doing. Make sure you check him out. All the links are in the show notes and also check out his TED Talk. 
If there's a guest you're interested in hearing from, feel free to send me a DM on Instagram. My Instagram is Sonia Looney and the number one, Sonia Looney one, or just go to SoniaLooney.com and use the contact form. I personally read and respond to every single message and I always appreciate your suggestions, your feedback, or even if you just want to say hi. All right, so I'm with you on this journey of growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And we'll see you right back here next week.